0: Screw it, screw it, we're just talk talk about
1: about comics. It. Welcome to Screw It, we're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, everyone. This is the only podcast in the history of podcasts where two men talk about a thing they are interested in and that (laughs) thing is comic books uh this specific one is hosted by two brothers we're not just men we're also brothers and kind of comedians i'm one of those brothers slash kind of comedians kevin hines and I'm the other one will hines yeah we are uh, located on opposite sides of the country i'm in new jersey he's in uh, los angeles that's the correct pronunciation thank you Mm -hmm we both uh, have been uh, performers with the UCB theater and done odds and ends of other stuff that are comedic ish.
2: Yeah, I once did yeah. stand up uh, on a the subway platform of a union station in New York City.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. like your number one credit.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's what people know me for. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um and yeah, uh, now we host this podcast about comic books that uh, either we grew up loving or in the case of today's episode, we should have grown up loving. Uh, yes. This is a mutants and mailbags episode. Yeah, and this is where for the
2: first half of the episode we'll talk about Chris Claremont's X Men. Uh, we started at the very beginning of Claremont's run to we'll work on our way through it, and then we'll um and then we'd read some email.
0: And as yeah, we say I, every
2: time, it's insane. We did not read these at the time. Um mm-hmm. Kevin and I were children of the 80s. Yeah so it was prime Claremont time. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and actually I did read some X Men then. Uh, yeah, just not with not with the passion or the completionist attitude that I had towards Spider-Man Fantastic Four and some of their titles.
1: And the, the issues that were we've been covering so far are sort of before our time. We would have mm-hmm. had to get them mm-hmm. through back issues anyway. Yeah. Um, and I definitely read some as well. My excuse is that you didn't buy them and I mostly okay. just read what you had. So I was limited by you. Otherwise, I would have read them and loved them as I was supposed to. But I'll say this. It is
2: dumb that in the years since we never Mm -hmm. read it because like we have gone on little jaunts of reading, you know, particular collections of this back issue or that back issue, you know, certainly we probably should have read Claremont's X-Men before the essential Spider-Man volume five or something like that. Right. Right. Uh, In terms of its impact in the industry and its quality and stuff like that, but we're, we're really enjoying it now. I mean, the, the advantage for us is we're getting to read these, absolutely incredible comics now and it's really fun to discover for the first time this stuff and i think it just almost totally holds up and i love it
1: yeah i mean without question the x-men is the most important run after stan lee stopped writing comics for sure at marvel and
2: maybe ever
1: yeah definitely at marvel i guess i'm saying at marvel yeah Uh, um probably you get, the think only run argument
2: in superhero comics. Like,
1: yes, you could. Um, a Crisis is probably pretty important uh, sure. just for the sake of what it did yeah, to it, DC. It, it, like as far as like runs that were more important, maybe Crisis, I'm not sure it is. Definitely Fantastic 4 and Amazing Spider-Man and the original like Superman and Batman comics. Sure, the original Superman is always that's the big bang. Yeah.
2: Um, so I would say
1: like those are like the the most the, the biggest impact that that have that changed comics the most would be the existence of superheroes. Um the beginning of the Marvel Age and maybe like Crisis Secret Wars like the beginning of event the comic crossover event type of stuff. Yeah. But maybe not. Maybe X-Men yeah. might beat them as just I, being more important because X-Men definitely is the beginning of like the what is still like I feel like still the modern age of comics. I don't know if this would be considered modern comics, but it feels to me like one step before where we're at now. It's kind of the, the in the way that
2: Didco's Spider-Man set the template for like your characters have to have yeah. an internal emotional life. X-Men was like, you have to have a melodramatic soap opera with multiple plot threads involving interesting characters and the feelings are just as important as the powers, et cetera, et cetera.
1: In fact, I would say that this is more important than even what we're probably right up there is like Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, like. Sure. Oh, yeah. A, a, a graphic novel type stories. Um, oh, a, yeah. Modernization, uh, like a real world look at comic books. Like those are hugely important. And I'd probably put them a step behind Claremont's X-Men.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, as influential as Watchmen and Dark Knight were, and we're going to do the Dark Knight um after our next round of guests the scope of x-men just like you know 15 years uh is so mammoth uh, chris claremont's x-men run it's just a different type of impact i mean
1: yeah today we're talking about issues 122 123 124 and annual number something i, I don't remember the number whatever came out right around then
2: three i think
1: um yeah it's weird <laughs> that just means it didn't have annuals for a long time Uh, because this is more than the third year of X-Men Comics' existence. Yeah. Uh, When I read these comics, what they feel like the most to me, like this most similar comic that I've read that they feel like, Mm -hmm. is Kirby FF. Okay, that's interesting. I can sort of
2: see where you're coming, but you
1: tell me why. Uh, Partially, it's the way they sort of fall from one adventure into the next adventure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is some of it, like, it just felt like FF when it was really uh playing at the top of its game it would just sort of be like oh we're fighting galactus and now that galactus is defeated the black panther has kidnapped us and oh here come those inhumans again like uh they never get a break or they very rarely get a break it's like a break every 12 issues where the ff go okay let's go to the bathroom and then also like just even the way those stories are told where uh like they kind of all start with these big splash pages with like whatever's going on right now that are just almost exciting in and of themselves even if the entire comic was just the splash page for mm-hmm. ff it, they'd be pretty good and i think the same is true for these comics like you get that first page you're like oh that was good oh wait, there's 20 more pages <laughs> or whatever uh so there's something about that in there as well um and then of course i mean this is maybe more standard marvel but like that they fight constantly with each other it's constantly emotion to a thousand, mm-hmm. but then they fight villains and they're the best of friends, the best of teams. That feels like the FF as well.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I wouldn't I wouldn't think to compare Kirby FF and X-Men so directly, but I can totally see what you mean. Um, at the place where we are at, and we're still relatively early in the Claremont X Men run, there's I think it still is a wild west feeling for the creators, like Right. Just unexplored territory in front of them for each of these characters. And I'm sure things were quite different by the time you got to like the late 80s. But I would say... And it feels wild and uncontrolled in a really fun way, like anything can happen.
1: But isn't that another way it's like the FF? Because the FF was also the Wild West. And like when they meet the Inhumans, it's like, well, that's a whole new thing. And like some of the stuff obviously preexisted, like the Savage Land preexisted. And Arcade appeared once before who we're going to see in this little bit. But, you know, it's still like Arcade becomes a major player. The Savage Land, I feel like, steps up because of its inclusion in the X-Men universe. The fact that the X-Men become sort of space characters is crazy yeah. to me. Uh, the Phoenix in and of itself is just a huge swing. To give her so much power. Yeah, to give her so much power to reinvent this character yeah. um, is crazy to me uh, in a way that feels... and like. A little bit of like the changing lineup, like, oh, is Phoenix on the team? She is. Now she's not. Now she is, is an aspect of it. Later on, Rogue will join or Kitty Pride will join. And that sort of is a changing of the lineup in the same way that FF would have temporary lineup changes. But even things
2: like when we first meet Wolverine, his claws are part of his costume. The next issue, they're part of his hand. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you find out that he speaks and reads Japanese
1: and he's in love with Mariko. Yeah. Uh, um, so it, it all feels like the FF to me. I mean, it it's definitely a modern version of it, but it it, yes. it it feels like someone, and I don't know if this is true of Chris Claremont, but just like, oh yeah, the FF was his book growing up. And now that he's doing comics, that's the one that influences them the most versus somebody who'd be writing a comic that was more influenced by Spider-Man. I think you'd see a very different type of X-Men comic.
2: That's really interesting. I, th- I think you might be right. Uh, It's funny because... It- As the X-Men goes on, it becomes so character-based that I automatically associate that more with like Steve Ditko and kind of emotions, but certainly the ones we're reading now, I totally know what you're saying about that FF vibe. Action-packed, nonstop, one story ends in the middle, a new one starts, three other threads going, whole new worlds discovered all the time. Yeah, it definitely feels like old. And
1: the emotion that is present in X-Men feels like Stan Lee emotion. You know, not like... um, Oh, I'm worried about this or I'm anxious about this, but like I'm madly in love with you. You're the most important person in the world to me. Oh, you're dead. Now I'm madly in love with this other person. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Like Yeah, uh, everything's an exclamation point. There's there's no like, oh, I'm interested in this person. Yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, we are it. we are we are friends. No, we are the greatest of friends. And if yes. anyone even looks at you wrong, anyone. I will murder them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I
2: mean, the passion is part of the fun, of course. Yes, of so. course little aside here I, i've talked to kevin about this off recording but i watched this documentary two nights ago uh chris claremont's x-men i saw it on amazon prime who's chris claremont oh he's interesting. he's one of, he's the writer
1: of x-men I, you know. oh they, these are written okay interesting yeah yeah oh.
2: yeah. these were not just i guess i thought these problems. were like
0: discovered yeah, i thought yeah, these, these were, were like gilgamesh like, yeah
2: <laughs> um which i assume were also not written That's right. None of those were written. The Gilgamesh stories and Chris Claremont's X-Men were not written. Gilgamesh was like formed through like erosion
1: and just like a freak occurrence in the earth soil.
2: Yeah. Just those, those etchings on the tablet were just pure coincidence. Uh, So this Chris Claremont's X-Men doc is, I, I recommend it highly if you are a a passionate X-Men fan. Now it is just to set your expectations, right. It's sort of lo-fi is just a, a handful of in-depth interviews with Claremont and uh, Louis Simonson and Ann Nesenti and Jim Shooter, um, with a little bit from Len Wein, um, and a couple other folks who are sort of comic book experts. But it's largely Claremont and Nesenti and Louis Simonson. But to me, that is the price of admission. Like they are speaking very candidly about what was important to them at different phases of the run. They're obviously really good friends who like each other and respect each other. And you get a real feel for the care that, and how, how personal it was to them and how much they cared about it. It will be absolutely inspiring to anybody who loves comics and certainly anybody who loves the Uh, X-Men. Chris Claremont's X-Men. I recommend it.
1: I mean, it's also crazy reading this because I think at this point, they they must've been a pretty popular comic already, but because it was such a new in a, in a way new popular comic because it wasn't popular a, a couple years ago. Yeah. It still feels this sort of like do what you want. And those comics are always like, I always get excited when like a creator is doing a run on a character that nobody wanted to write. Cause they have like the Peter David book. did a Peter David did a great run on the Hulk, but like nobody wanted to write the Hulk is how he got that book. Yeah. Um, and including, it's sort of including like including him. Yeah. So it's like, do what you want. And nobody wants this book. And so as opposed to Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four at that time, or even where the Avengers, all, all eyes are on it. Yeah. It's like, we want this book to be good. So uh, maybe don't do that story. And yeah, be a little careful, you know, that's where like things like squirrel girl or uh, over at DC comics, like there was like weird comics I've loved, like our man and things like that. Just like, why is this comic so cool? It's like, Oh, cause it doesn't sell and no one cares. And X-Men I think sort of fell into that where it's sort of like, Hey, wait a second, this is our most popular, most exciting, most important comic. Maybe we should pay attention to it and and tinker with it and spin it off and do a big event. And Claremont was through a lot of that stuff too. And uh, having only read tiny bits of it, I have no idea how good or bad it goes through those times. But right now it sort of still feels like hands are off. I, I agree.
2: It has that reckless feeling that I really love. It does not feel constrained by continuity or lots of cooks mm-hmm. in a nice way. Um should we get into it, Kevin?
1: Yeah, sure. Let's do it. So, so the, the first the issue <laughs> So the first issue we're talking about is issue 122, which is uh, like Colossus is on the cover, like in the danger room, pushing on big metal plates. It's called the trial of Colossus. But really, this issue just sort of feels like uh, almost like a table setting issue after the X-Men have like just basically been to the Savage Land in Japan and Canada, just going from like country to country getting in big fights. And it's like, now they're home. And it sort of feels like nothing happens in this issue, but it's also like a really fun issue. But I I love this issue. I think it's really special. I really, really loved it too. But like, as opposed to like, oh, the last two issues, they fought Alpha Flight. What happens in this issue? It's like a lot of little things. You couldn't sum this up in, like I think the cover saying Trial of Colossus is like, yeah, that's what happens in the first few pages. Also, and
2: I think in our last episode, I was saying, oh, they're not paying a lot of attention to Colossus. And this issue came along and shut me right up because he basically is the featured character in this, and and he's featured a lot in the
1: next couple issues. Well, I'd say he's the featured on the cover, but like half this issue is Storm. It's a it's a very interesting thing. Like it begins with Colossus, like in the seemingly room. seemingly being unable to lift things or push things to the extent he could have earlier on in the series, and and Cyclops doesn't know why Colossus is weaker other than confidence.
2: Right. So it's like he's having a mental block. And we have Mm -hmm. seen the seeds planted for that. He has doubted himself in some recent battles and thought that he's not pulling his weight. And so now we see that he's got like a mental block against using his full strength. So he's in the danger room. He's trying to push apart these two, you know, the danger room has all these insane. Mm -hmm. This is also very FF, just like the Kirby machines are as complicated as you need at any moment. um, the
1: I know Professor X is supposed to be rich, but this danger room would bankrupt him in a week. I don't care it's who he over, is. It's overfunded. Uh, so we got these. Standard- <laughs> only, only Canada could afford a danger room like this. Yeah, this is
2: Canadian level budget here. So we got two walls closing in on Colossus. He's having trouble holding the part and he's scared and he's telling Cyclops to stop the pressure. Cyclops and Wolverine are sort of like in the control booth. It's kind of the danger room seems to be set up like Abbey Road recording studios where you're in a little room with a mixing board and then out in the main room, you got all the gadgets.
1: That's just Will's way of trying to work in the fact that he's been in the Abbey Road recording room. I try to drop that
2: a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I recorded a podcast about the Beatles at Abbey Road and least popular episode of my podcast. <laughs> so um, crazy.
1: That's one of the few I've listened to.
2: Yeah, I guess because it wasn't or usual. Like, it was, sort of it dumb, was like three.
1: It was three of them. That's right.
2: Well, we recorded, we, we had to rent it for the whole day. So I was like, well, i will do three
1: episodes. We have
2: 10 hours here. Um,
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, so Colossus can't do these plates. So Wolverine sort of uh, uh, goes down there and puts himself in danger to see what Colossus will do if he's in danger. And Colossus I, like immediately rips apart. I love this move.
2: Yeah. This is very Wolverine at a time when Wolverine's personality, I think, is still sort of being established.
1: Yeah, John Byrne is changing Wolverine. He, John Byrne is uh, an avowed Wolverine fan and has pushed him further up into the limelight. It, you know, a big part of why this character is so popular now, probably.
2: Colossus is between these two walls, and Wolverine just kind of calmly sits between the two walls at Colossus's feet, lights up a cigarette, and it's like, hey, if these walls collapse, you'll be all right because you're made of steel, but I'll die. But I, but I believe you'll save me. So he just yep. puts his light, and also he has, before he left that control room with his claws, he damaged the controls so Cyclops cannot stop them. Yeah. It's uh, it's actually, it's, I love this. I think this is yeah. such a cool thing in the first like three or four pages.
1: Wolverine is so sure that Colossus could do this when it ha- when he has to, that he's putting his own life on the line.
2: Um, and and Colossus, he's right. He, Colossus can do it. Once he sees that Wolverine is in true danger, he smashes the walls with no problem. Uh, it's a nice moment of Wolverine having total faith in Colossus. Also, it's Cyclops bring out this funny box that just says "toolkit" on it
1: to, I guess, fix the Danger Room. It's pretty fun. There's a yeah. There's a twice in these three issues that we're about to go through. Um, Wolverine has to like do like reprogramming work like electronics work, which I do not associate with him at all. Yeah. But that's, he's sort of like a pretty good electronics guy in this short bit.
2: (laughs) It, it, he kind of passes it off as like tough guys know how to fix motorized stuff.
1: Yeah. Like high tech danger rooms. (laughs) And in the next (laughs) issue, like arcades, secret uh, danger, uh, uh, murder uh, base or whatever.
2: Um, So we have that nice little opening sequence with Colossus, getting over yeah. his mental block thanks to Wolverine's faith. But that's like three pages. I wouldn't say Colossus
1: is featured in this comic. He's just...
2: I guess you're right. But I guess just as somebody who was feeling that Colossus was ignored, yeah. to have him front and center, even just for the first three pages, I was like, all right, all right, X-Men. You read my mind. Uh, then we get... Go, we go, so there's a little subplot here where uh, Scott is falling in love with this woman, Colleen. Uh, Colleen thinks- Wing,
1: who's like an Iron Fist supporting character as well. And Claremont was writing Iron Fist, right? That's why we're getting all these. He either was uh, currently or had just
2: been. Yeah, he and John Byrne had a long run on Iron Fist. Yeah, so Colleen is here, and that's interesting because Scott had dated Jean Grey for a long time, but he thinks Jean Grey is dead. Jean Grey is not dead. Right, he's in
1: Scotland. Uh, Scotland, yeah. Um, and but but they don't have their phones working yet. That's no, sort of the
2: excuse. All of their best friends are dead and they tried once while in Japan to to
1: look for a phone and they haven't thought about it since. Yeah. So but there's like a little one off line here about being like trying to get our phone lines turned back on. But I mean, he thinks Gene is dead and they, they're not sure where the professor is. So they, they really just want to call Moira McTaggart and just let her know they're they're back and that Gene is dead. They don't uh, think people know that. they think either everyone thinks we're all dead or they think uh, we're all alive. Right. So they
2: got to say we are alive and also the beast and Phoenix are dead because
1: that's what they're doing. Which is not true, but...
2: Not true. They're both doing great. Yeah. So we see Banshee. Banshee's voice has been shredded. His powers are gone.
1: Yeah, he He, can talk now, but he can't use his uh, vocal-based superpowers. Because
2: he overdid it. He overextended himself to like cut that volcano in half outside of Japan.
1: Yeah, yeah. So and we also we also cut away to Professor X on his uh, uh, romantic space jaunt with his new love interest. L- I, Lalandra, is that her call, her name? Lalandra, yeah. Uh, I guess because he's bald,
2: I think of this as like Patrick Stewart, but he's kind of a stud, right? Like he's he's having this like love affair and he's just mm-hmm. dropped his earthly life completely. Like to a degree well, that I think is almost irresponsible.
1: Well, he thinks the X-Men are dead. Instead of doing like a third round of X-Men, he's like, eh. I'm out of here.
2: Or like calling their families, or just like I feel like <laughs> I feel like he could have done some legwork here.
1: Yeah, right. It doesn't seem like any. I mean, I, I guess we don't know about a lot of their families. Like, there's no one to call for Storm or Wolverine or Nightcrawler. Colossus has a family that should be told he's dead. Yeah, uh, Banshee also, Moira would know. That's his girlfriend. So, also, Cl- also, but Cyclops has family, so they should be told he's dead.
2: Yeah, and aren't they just like? Friends of the X-Men they should give a heads up to? Like, I don't
1: think of them. I don't think they're very outgoing.
2: In that Marvel way, it's like, hey, Spider-Man, the X-Men are gone. Uh,
1: yeah, I don't know if he would care.
2: He teams mm-hmm. up with them, but not any more than he like teams up with other people. Uh, so Professor X is having a little midlife romance. He's sick of solving everybody else's problems.
1: If anything, the Marvel Universe needs like one of those old-fashioned phone trees where like you call somebody and they call somebody, yes. right? So I he should like, just call... I don't know. Jarvis, I feel like Jarvis would be a good guy to kick off the phone tree. Yeah, and so then Jarvis would like let the Avengers know, and then like Yellow Jacket would call the Fantastic Four, and Captain America would call the Defenders or whatever.
2: Um, We cut to Scotland Mm -hmm. after after Professor X and Lalandra are sort of canoodling on some Kirby esque spacecraft. You're right. Now I'm seeing Jack Kirby all over this. Now that you've pointed it out. Yeah. Phoenix is in Scotland, and she gets approached Stornoway. Yeah, she gets gets approached approached by a dashing mysterious stranger.
1: Yeah, and this guy refers to the Hellfire Club, which uh, I I know a little bit about, but not a ton. Um, But they're evil, they're bad guys. And so and they have something to do with Phoenix's backstory that I'm uh, never quite sure about, but this is where that all starts. And so, again, it's like a new group of villains is being, like, seeded here by Claremont and Byrne.
2: And um, Phoenix is taken with uh, this guy. His name is Jason Wingard. She's mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, he's like, I hope to see you again. And she's like, yeah, that would be nice. And then we find her thinking about him for the rest of this issue. Right. And next couple issues. So she's she's sort of smitten with this stranger.
1: Um, then we have, like, Colleen and Scott on a date. And then Wolverine drives Storm into, like, the bad area of town so she can go to where her family lived when they lived in America.
2: Yes. And so she's walking through Harlem, a black woman with shocking white hair and a big white fur coat, like, Yeah, there's some serious swagger to Storm.
1: Yeah. Uh, And she like goes into basically um, a crack house.
2: Yes. Like this is where her parents used to live. But now it's a shooting gallery, which is Mm -hmm. a place for people who are addicted to heroin use it to shoot up. Yeah, so
1: she goes in there. She immediately, they try to mug her, but unfortunately for them, she controls the weather. (laughs) Yeah, they pull
2: out some knives and threaten her to muscle her around, and she summons the elemental forces of the weather and fucks them up. (laughs) Yeah, Uh,
1: And then uh, Luke Cage, Power Man, and Misty Knight show up (laughs) and uh, escort Storm out of there. And basically they're like, yeah, this stinks, Uh, there's sort of a nod towards like not enough is done to help people in these conditions. Uh, Oh, well, let's get out (laughs) of here. A fun thing happens at this issue where after that it ends with a section called
2: prologue.
1: Yes. Like the last
2: couple pages of this issue are titled prologue and it's black Tom and juggernaut hiring arcade to mess with the X-Men setting up the next two issues.
1: Right, and this—I mean, this feels like a very modern thing in comics, where it's like you see the next issue at the very end of your current issue. But I feel like that didn't happen for a long time, and I don't know when it started. Uh, in most comics, it would sort of be other than like maybe a caption box, unless it was like a two-part story or like the villain they were fighting. This issue was continuing. They it would sew sort it up pretty neatly at up, the end, yeah. Except for Fantastic Four, where things would sort of start off in the previous issue. Oh yeah,
2: man! And for that, for that middle. Cir- circa issue 50 of fantastic four you know some of the best superhero comics you'll ever read uh that was happening so intensely like galactus would be defeated on page 10 yeah and then the inhumans inter- are brought in on page 11 or something like
1: that right uh it's just it it's the end of the story was not the end of the issues and then that in that, in that yes. run uh, and this is a little less on the nose as that. But um, this prologue being the last thing in the story definitely feels like, oh, shouldn't this wait till next issue? But no, it's sort of just to tease the next issue. And Arcade, I can't imagine people know who Arcade is because I think he'd only appeared in one arc of Marvel team up at this point. But John Byrne seems to love him or Claremont or somebody. I mean, it was a Claremont issue. It was a Spider-Man, Captain Britain, uh, Marvel team up issue that Claremont wrote and maybe Byrne drew. I, I, I don't know. Well, and obviously, Arcade is cool. He's fun. Arcade is really fun. Like the circus issue where he
2: was a circus master was really fun, and these next two issues where he is but well, he was not. He was
1: he just looked like it. That was Banshee. He was not oh, in that circus issue. He wasn't. We just commented that that guy looked a little like Arcade. Oh,
2: oh. But that
1: was Banshee, who was this the the Barker using his he vocal looked so powers? Much like it on the cover. But Arcade was not in that story. That okay, was I'm Mesmero. Mesmero was the villain of that. Oh,
2: story. that's right. Mesmero. Sorry, I got mixed up. Yeah. Uh, okay. So. So this is arcade's first. Arcade.
1: This is arcade's first encounter with the X Men, which I associate him with the X Men big time. But he's not really an X Men villain. He's just a villain. But because of these early arcade, because Claremont invented the character, I think arcade feels like an X Men car- villain.
2: What do you think of these two? This two part
1: arcade adventure. I mean, it's a blast. How would you uh, sum it up? <laughs> I don't know. They get thrown into a pinball machine and. Uh, <laughs> Eventually just get let go. They don't really win. Yeah. Arcade just kind of gives up. What's, what's the name? He's got a name for it. Like the death amusement park or something. It's murder world. Yeah. Really fun. Spider-Man has a little guest appearance in this, uh, which is also sort of fun. Like he sort of just chats with Cyclops asking for gossip. Uh, like he's like, oh, you guys are dating. I want to find out what's going on there. And he asks about somebody else. If somebody he's like, is Misty Knight still dating Iron Fist or something? Right,
2: right, right. He's real. He's real gossip in this issue.
1: Yeah, and then um, <laughs> it's also funny. Like uh, Arcade kidnaps the X Men, and Spider Man recognizes the sound effect. <laughs> right, right. Um, Scott and Colleen are walking along, and a
2: garbage truck created and funded by Arcade rolls up, and like this big device springs out of the back. A tube and like encloses them the way you might put a jar over an insect, and the sound effect is sufflang Spider Man, a couple blocks away, goes Saflang? <laughs> Where have I heard that? Oh, arcade. Like he's like the Sherlock Holmes of identifying side effects. He like it, yeah, pins yeah. it to a villain. That but was how. How fun is that?
1: It was really fun. It's very silly. A little later in the issue, he like calls the Avenger, uh, rather the X Men via payphone, and when he finds out they've already been captured, screams no and smashes the phone booth around him, which is also very silly and melodramatic.
2: It's melodramatic, but it is little things like that that do. That's what gives the impression of oh, the people making this comic are having fun, mm-hmm. like they're engaged with it, they're enjoying it, um, and it's contagious. Um,
1: but yeah, uh, Arcade spends like half the issue kidnapping the X Men very successfully. Uh, Spider-Man breaks a phone booth and then they're in the pinball machine.
2: Um, yeah, and then it's sort of like all these contraptions he has set up to defeat them. And it's, um, it is sort of like early FF days. You know, like a villain would show up and is like, I've got devices for each of you, FF.
1: I mean, death traps are such a big part of superheroes. They're sort of passe now because it feels silly. It's like, why not just kill... Kill the heroes. Why do you have to put them in a thing that they could possibly defeat? Why do you do that? But arcades are just built around the idea of death traps are fun. He's a guy who enjoys death traps. Yeah. He doesn't want to just shoot you. Like he's he's drugged them all. He could have killed them all. If his really only goal was to kill the X-Men, he's succeeded. Yeah, he had them all subdued. Um, but instead he puts them in this death trap because he just wants to have fun. And I like that about this character. It's like, oh, yeah, Death Traps don't make sense. He doesn't care about that.
2: Arcade has such fun with it that it is kind of like, he, you know, he's like a low-key Joker in a way. Yeah. Like he's having such a good time that it's sort of fun to watch him do it. What do you think yeah. about the Colossus trap? That's my favorite one.
1: So, yeah, the heroes get all sort of separated, though. They, like, bounce bounce around and, like, reunite and get separated again. But Colossus gets brainwashed into <laughs> becoming a, uh, a a communist character who's furious with the X-Men for brainwashing him into the American way called the prolet the proletariat. The proletarian. The pro- proletarian, sorry. He's um, wearing
2: big bright red overalls with a picture of Vladimir Lenin on the front. It says yeah. CCCP. And he's got like a, you know, a newsies cap that looks kind of like the uh what, what Lenin would wear during the Russian Revolution. Uh it is a hilarious on-the-nose costume. It's, he almost could just be dressed up as a hammer and sickle.
1: Yeah, it's very funny. Arcade is even like, well, I brainwashed this guy
2: fast.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, he said like, wow, he must have already had doubts to have been turned so quickly, which he he was having doubts.
1: He was having doubts,
0: yeah. He was, it, having, it
2: is, he was having guilt about it.
1: It is very fun. It seems like it would be hard to get Colossus to hurt his friends, even if he had doubts, because like the big thing is he... He's very faithful and loyal. Always he's a been good guy. Trait. Like
2: he's he is the the good hearted member of the X-Men.
1: But, but it, it, it is it is very fun to have him. Yeah, yeah. Just totally
2: turn on these US capitalist
1: pigs. Um Banshee's also in this trap, which is totally unfair because he is powerless at this point. So he's just yeah. uh, just an, Irish uh you know, an Irish guy, <laughs> guy running around running away <laughs> from airplanes and stuff, going, I his wish only, I had my powers.
2: Yeah. His only ability is to like, you know, tell a good anecdote. That's um, all he's
1: got. Nightcrawler is fighting like Razor go karts. Um, Wolverine is fighting very high tech robots of himself. Yep. Um, So they all have sort of their own traps. It's very fun in that first issue. But Wolverine Uh,
2: uses a sense of smell to like uh, break through some of this. Uh, What does Cyclops do? Cyclops. Cyclops just shoots
1: his. He thinks his way out of it.
2: He realizes that it must be a trap Mm -hmm. and doesn't follow the rules
1: of the game. And that's how he escapes his. And he's right. Uh, the title of the second issue is "He Only Laughs When I Hurt," which is a fun title that mostly makes sense, I think. But it's a very it it's very sense. fun. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, we get a little bit of Arcade's backstory. Who cares? Um, well, there is the, yes, but the, the the way it's introduced
2: is quite fun. So he's also kidnapped the women uh, uh, of the X Men. Right? We have Colleen, um, who here is wrapped up in gifts. One of them is
1: Nightcrawler's girlfriend Date. yeah yeah the
2: flight attendant he was there's
1: dating. no i don't think there's dates i think you just immediately are in full-fledged relationships in comic books
2: okay so you got in that case you have scott summer's uh, partner colleen nightcrawler's partner the flight attendant whose name i forget because i am a partner. yeah i don't therapy.
1: remember either <laughs> she barely has factored into any of these stories
2: And then um, they're kind of in the control room with Arcade, watching him watch all the X-Men suffer. Arcade, by the way, is dressed to the nines. Got a three-piece white suit, great Mm -hmm. little bow tie going, these big old 70s shoes.
1: I don't know who the third woman is. Yeah, me either. Nightcrawler's girlfriend has a friend who he he, was always trying to (laughs) set up with Colossus at some point, but I don't know. uh, Um, My favorite line here. But Mariko was not captured for Wolverine, who's been seeing her very briefly.
2: Yeah, that oh man! If Wolverine saw that Morica was captured, I'm already excited at the damage he would <laughs> he would wreck in revenge. Like Arcade would not be alive. Yeah. Um. See, already Wolverine's fun that way. Like just yep. to know what is what he's capable of. But they the they do you know before he goes into his exposition explaining his backstory, one of the women says, "What kind of sewer did you crawl out of, anyway?" And Arcade goes, "Beverly Hills." <laughs> and uh, for this LA boy, that made me laugh.
1: He is ripped in that backstory, by the way. Oh, he's uh, Jack. Arcades, not just brains, man. That guy is built.
2: Brains and muscle. It's also very Jack Kirby. You, it's hard to be a, a character in a Jack Kirby inspired universe and not be completely shredded.
1: Yeah, only Ditko draws guys who are not uh in he's shape. He's got like pot bellies and like yeah. weird hairlines. Yeah, this story starts the, the the action starts with the proletarian fighting the X-Men still, the X-Men trying to talk him out of it. A storm is like underwater, but like again, they're like they keep like hitting door. It's almost like a haunted mansion, like a Scooby-Doo episode. Like every time a character goes against the wall, it flips around and they're in another part. Yeah. They're getting like switched partners, like Colossus is fighting the proletarian with Wolverine and then next thing he knows, he's falling down a tube to be next to Nightcrawler.
2: Well, Storm rips off like two-thirds of her clothes and then uses a lightning bolt to blast through a drain. That's how she escapes from being underwater. It's hard to control, to contain a woman who controls
1: lightning. You're basically trying to put Zeus in a cell. Uh, Cyclops shoots his, um, whatever his visor beam, uh, his eye blast and it ricochets like 30 times to take out all of these razor cars. It was a very impressive shot. That's all I want to say.
2: It was, um, it's, it's a fun action issue, right? Like Claremont and Byrne, just, just at your, just at your meat and potatoes super villain fight. They're good at it. Like it's fun and visually inventive and it moves quick.
1: Uh, Nightcrawler finds arcade and, uh, almost defeats him single-handedly, uh, but sort of gets jettisoned away through like some sort of air burst or something.
2: How do they eventually convince Arcade? So they... They don't convince they, him. Basically, they just survive long enough. They talk Colossus back also. They they yes. remind him that he's friends and the brainwashing wears off and he gives him a big bear hug.
1: Yeah. And then basically once that happens, Arcade wraps him up in another pinball ball and shoots them back out into uh, Brooklyn? Yeah. The Bronx into to the Bronx and to a Bronx amusement center and then gives them a note saying round one round to one you to X-Men. X-Men. Yeah. Till uh, next and, time. Arcade. Wolverine wants to go back in and fight the guy. And, and, you know, Cyclops does his normal thing of like, now nah, let's go home. Right. That's always his thing. Let's walk away and go to the next issue. Yeah.
2: Fun though. I say like really, really fun. fun.
1: Really, really fun.
2: Where, you know, there's, there's bigger and more impactful X-Men storylines right almost next But at this point in our reading, we have seen that Claremont and Byrne are just like really good at your basic superhero story. Like they're about to push that envelope and go a lot further, but it's kind of like, I don't know the, the legendary directors um, before they do their sort of like boundary breaking stuff. They just do some good movies. Yeah. Like Spielberg does Jaws and Jaws Mm -hmm. is just a super fun movie. And like, And uh, Kubrick does The Killing, which is like that insane heist movie at the horse track. And it's just like pretty straight ahead story Mm -hmm. told with crazy visuals and really fun, you know, cuts and stuff like
1: that. And so I think what we're seeing here is guys just showing
2: off, hey, we're good at doing comic book stories.
1: And I say say this every time, but John Byrne is just great at the action sequences. They are just fun to look at. Even if you just flip to this comic and didn't read it and missed a little bit of what's going on. It looks fun. It looked like the action is all eye-catching and interesting. There's no just people punching each other in an empty room. Everything has got more visual flair than that. And some of that is the situations that Claremont is putting them in, or Burn, because it's co-plotted. But Arcade's a Claremont guy. I assume it was his idea to bring Arcade in. Uh, But Burn takes that and always draws it in a really fun, inventive way, which Ditko was great at. But, like, I do think especially at this time, we're coming out of an era where, uh, and I haven't read a ton of early 70s comics, but the Spider-Man stuff I've read is boring. Uh, The fights are boring. The stories are sort of by the numbers. And so neither thing is really getting you. And here we have like fun stories and beautiful, cool looking action. It's a total package. Let's go on to the annual. Yeah. So this is annual three. Um, It features Archon, who's a character who looks familiar to me. I've probably read him in a story (laughs) or two. I know nothing about. You look so, you look so wearied when you are like presented with yet another character. Like,
2: ah, do I know this guy?
1: Yeah. I mean, I know him. I don't know anything about him. Like (laughs) this guy, this guy with lightning bolts looks familiar to me. I'm sure I've read him in something, but it's like, uh, who like, this is clearly just a character that either Claremont or the artist, George Perez wanted to put in this story. Yeah. Uh, But George Perez is the artist on this story. And. Oh boy. Claremont has gone from Dave Cockrum to John Byrne. And it's like, oh, you got an annual. We can't get Byrne for the annual. We'll have to get you George Perez. (laughs) I know. The splash pages in
2: this thing are so beautiful. Like, whenever it pulls back for a wide shot, I'm like, my jaw
1: drops. It doesn't. oh, my God. To me, like, we're seeing Byrne at, like, his near peak probably. Yeah. And his peak is long. But I think Perez is still, like, gets way better than this. And it's already just perfect. It's already great. Yeah, like if this was Perez's peak, you'd be like, oh, this guy is so great. But I think he gets even better, like in the uh, 90s when he's working with like Kurt Busaic. Um, His art gets even better, but it looks great. This whole issue is beautiful. It's sort of a silly story. Yeah. Like real quick, it's about like Archon, this barbarian who throws lightning bolts, kidnapping Storm to like reignite their son and the X-Men come and help. But it looks amazing.
2: With Perez, you're just ready for the big splash page, the insanely detailed cityscape, you know, 50 characters swarming in, each one of them detailed super well somehow. When there's a group fight scene, he draws everybody. (laughs) And then also the close ups, uh, a lot of character, a lot of emotion in the face. He doesn't skimp on the human part of this either, even though he is good at the cinematic parts.
1: His also, his layouts are really good. I'm skipping way ahead, but Archon invades the X, uh, Archon basically is looking for Thor because of his previous adventure for some reason, but ends up settling on the X Men for storm purposes because he needs lightning. And there's when they get to the X Mansion and Archon's fighting them all, there's a bit where Archon gets blasted through the wall into the pool. Yeah, and it's this beautiful page. Like the layout is really cool. Like the first panel is this long, thin panel that is sort of bad layout in the sense that your eye is supposed to go along the top row. So you're not really looking at the bottom of this panel, but because all the action is at the top, I don't know, it's hard to describe in a audio format. It's a counterintuitive like layout flow. You
2: start bottom left.
1: Right, but it 100% works. And it's just because of how good George Perez is because all the action is at the top of this long panel. You could sort of look down if you want. It doesn't super matter. So, you kind of look at the top and you see where he comes from. So, you're almost seeing it from Colossus's viewpoints. Like, you see this guy hit the pool. Colossus realizes he comes out of the mansion. Then you see Colossus transform to fight this guy and knock Archon through another wall or something. It just looks so cool. It and looks so
2: good. And the per last is panel is so
1: good. Colossus, you know, roundhouse punches Archon
2: and knocks him. But at that point, he's knocking him off the end of the
1: page like your your eye is brought to turn the page with yeah it's a page turning a panel uh perfectly it's it's just a really really well laid out panel page i mean the comic is filled with them but that one stood up to me big time i was like oh this page is perfect for a page that is basically just a guy gets punched
2: (laughs) i think you kind of want your annuals to be this like you don't want them to really disrupt whatever your current stories are in the regular issues but you also do want something a little extra a little cinematic i mean to me the the model of the marvel annual is the sinister six annual one for spider-man just like give me some great splash pages give me yeah. some hugely fun art a fun battle and then wrap it up so we can get back to the stories in the regular issues and annual accomplishes be- that
1: annuals become such a pain in the neck thing for marvel like there's stretches where like they are just sort of fill in issues mm-hmm. or they're sort of kind of doing their own little event off in the side and they don't always work. But the best ones, like, I mean, the best X-Men annuals that I've read and maybe are the ones with Art Adams where they go to Asgard. Yeah. Uh, I haven't read a ton of X-Men, but I reread those issues where the New Mutants and the X-Men go to Asgard a thousand times because it's just so cool and so fun. It's just a two-part adventure. I mean, pre, pre-MCU, these were the Marvel movies. So this is a beautifully fun story. I enjoyed the three... Issues prior to this, the arcade one and the sort of this table setting one better. But, I mean, Perez helps make this issue just a breeze and a fun to read.
2: So we go to another land for the second half of this issue?
1: Yeah. What, Kevin, what's happening? I don't know. They go to Archon's world, which is a place that is normally always daytime, I guess, because they have some magical ring around the planet, but it has burned out. So now it is always nighttime. So they've brought Storm to restart it but it will kill her to do that for reasons. Once the X-Men figure that out, we can go back and talk about some of the stuff that happens before that. They find some way where if Zor- Storm zaps Cyclops first, he can restart it and everyone will live for other reasons that don't fully yeah, make sense to me, but it works.
2: Uh, it's it's It falls generally in the category of if we work together, we can do this
1: type of thing. Yeah. We, we don't have to let Storm. There's also, and it, To go improv for a second, when you and I perform improv or teach improv, we often talk about, like, justifying silly decisions or bad decisions for the sake of, like, letting the scene go forward. It's like, we need Archon to, like, fight the X-Men. That's what this comic is about. Right. He could show up and be like, Storm, my world needs help. Can you come save them? And she would say, yes. Right. And basically, when they push him on that, he's like, my people don't do that. So his yeah. just, just justification is like, no, no, not in this world. We fight. Right. We take right. What, It's like, okay, that's it. Let's well, you get, don't get, need an explanation. Let's get to the fun stuff. Um, the reason, the reason why we fought is because that's what we do. <laughs> and it's, and it's enough, you know, you just need like a tiny nod to the fact that like, why did he not at least ask first when they first get to this world? There's like a two page spread with like a middle panel that goes across where everyone is fighting. Well, yeah. Do you see this is right after the chapter three beginning? Yes. Man, that is a dense panel by George Perez. Perez is really featuring Colossus a lot, huh? At um, in these
2: battles. Colossus I mean, is kind of front and center a lot. He's strong. He's a strong guy. Yeah, it's
1: it's, it's Tactically, it makes sense. Um, Cyclops also comments a lot, which I didn't know happened, is that his beams were running out of power and he needs the sun to recharge. I didn't realize that was a thing for him.
2: Yeah, I've never known that either couple thirst traps of Storm. I got called out by Chris Gethard for having a crush on Storm. I want to say uh I Yeah, you're I'm the real, first you're the first person I'm the first
1: person who's ever had a crush on Storm. You're the first person who thinks Storm is attractive. Most people <laughs> think uh she's a homely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Storm is both beautiful and
2: just mesmerizing in every way and I do have a crush on Storm. I'm excited to see her. I hate to I hate to be a man, but uh there's a lot of just um how do I put this nicely? Instagramable photos of uh, uh, shots of Storm. Photos. They're drawing. Yeah. Uh,
1: Storm is beautiful in an interesting way. Like, uh, in, you know, like in the era of like the late 90s, 2000s, beautiful meant big breasts and butt <laughs> all shoved towards the camera. And Storm is beautiful in an elegant, often way, like where she just sort of she's like. She's regal. Yeah. She's like a beautiful queen. She's a princess. Uh, and she stands there and she's better than you.
2: Also, a lot it's of the shots beautiful of Storm, and
1: smarter and nicer yes. and more powerful. And it's
2: like, confident. who wouldn't want to be with her? Uh, also, a lot of drawings. She has no pupils. There's a lot of just the, mm-hmm. you know, she's one of those superhero characters who just has like fully white eyes. And uh, that gives a lack of emotional intimacy that makes me feel safe.
1: I mean, and she's also uh, shows a lot of skin. So for a perv like you that wants to see <laughs> drawn naked women, you get into that, I know. So
2: the creep factor. Yeah. 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 Um, Well, that happens in this issue.
1: So um, thank you, George Perez. Yeah. Uh, She is a beautiful character. There's no question why Halle Berry would be cast as playing her um, in the movies. And yeah, it's fun. Storm, you know, is powerful in the story and gets to be powerful. Storm tears
2: it up. Uh, but all the X-Men tear it up. They're just a, a powerful group and they're really fun to watch.
1: Yeah. It's a fun story that everyone gets their part, like Nightcrawler trails one of the wizards to figure out where Storm is. Yeah. Um, Storm is willing to sacrifice herself, which is cool. Colossus gets some great fight sequences. You know, uh, Cyclops is a real the leader. He, there's a number of times he makes like smart decisions in this story that is like, yeah, he's really smart and helping out constantly. Wolverine is maybe less featured, but he is essential and like, nothing's going to stop this guy from saving storm. And it's, it's just a fun story.
2: Yep. Uh, there's another moment where Wolverine cheers on Colossus in this issue. Way to go. Colossus uh, Wolverine says.
1: Yeah. It's very cool. There's also like the moment when like Cyclops figures out the, the lightning bolts are what transports you people the, these people to this other world or whatever. Mm-hmm. And just basically throws these lightning bolts on. he's like, I hope this works. I might be killing us all. Yeah. Uh, It's also smart that they don't take Banshee with them, just because he's on the team because he has no powers. Right. Um, It's not just like we have to bring all of
2: our characters along no matter what. It's like, no, you got no powers. You're staying.
1: Yeah. Uh, So it's very fun. It's a fun use of this, I guess, Avengers character who I have no real interest in. (laughs) um, um, But it's a fun story. And I think that's where like Claremont and and the best writers of this era uh, and any era are great. It's like, he's not using Archon because he feels like he should or to like keep this ip going he's just sort of like i think this character's fun i'm going to tell a fun story yes. with this character yes and you can reading this story you can see like oh yeah i see why you love this character i don't necessarily feel you know, like if if this was like now they're announcing a new archon series i don't know if i'm reading it but i get why claremont likes it he presents i'm excited because uh, uh kevin uh started to wrap this up we're we're the
2: next phase of X-Men stories we're heading into are incredibly good. It's the Proteus story.
1: Yes. Which we read one issue with when we had Jesse Falcon on. So we're going to read that whole arc. Yeah. And I've read ahead uh, and I have read it already. It must uh, be nice. Yeah. Having pretty, the time to read.
2: Yep. I, I'm rubbing your face in it. And uh, oh boy, is it a winner? Oh my gosh. are we, well, We're about to head into a great one. That'll be our next mailbag
1: episode. So write us
2: some emails, everyone. Yeah, screwitcomics at gmail. Uh, We also have a Twitter, screwitcomics, and an Instagram, screwitcomics. But let's take a break and we'll do our mail properly.
1: Let's do it. Hi, this is Kevin. I'm here with my brother, Will, and we are the hosts of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, our weekly podcast about comic books. And we want to hear from you. We have a slew of social media accounts. A slew. You can email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com or see us on Instagram at screwitcomics or tweet at us at screwitcomics. So tell us what you think of the comics you like
2: or the comics you don't or things we've talked about on our episodes. Or send us some life advice. You can tell that we need it. Yes. Uh, We might read your message on a future episode of our show. So thanks. In advance from Screw It, we're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media.
1: And we are back, and it is time to do our emails. You ready for this, Will? You know it, pal.
2: Okay, I'm, we got I'm uh, As ready as the proletarian is ready to strike down capitalist
1: dogs. I feel like we went a little long in the first half, but um, I don't know what to do about that now. <laughs> Okay. So here we got a few things on Instagram that I want to read real quick. This first one's from Shane McLean. Okay. Uh, And this is in reference to the Calgary Stampede. Well, do you remember the Calgary Stampede? Yes, that's
2: where X-Men and Alpha Flight faced off.
1: Yeah. And you had mentioned you had never heard of it, but it was... It was presented as like a great big deal in Canada. Well, Shane McLean says, uh, it reminded me of another Calgary Stampede set comic. Uh, this is a, a Marvel comics giveaway in the early nineties. It's the amazing Spider-Man chaos in Calgary. Uh, (laughs) and, uh, I don't know if you'll see this well, uh, but it's a picture of Spider-Man riding a bull. Uh, so he said it was one of the first comics he ever read. Yeah. So, uh, that's one thing. Uh, then we had an Instagram, uh, post from Kel Keel Williams, Mm -hmm. uh, who he talks about the Calgary stampede. Uh, he says the WWF and Canadian sports legend Brett the Hitman Hart got to start wrestling at the Calgary Stampede as a cowboy. He tells us didn't know that. Uh, but then he also uh, disputes some of our. Uh, I guess we were sort of disparaging to Alpha Flight in that story for causing a lot of damage. Yes, I think that. He, he, I think I'm on our side for this. I'm on our side too. Uh, he defends Alpha Flight, and here it goes uh all the danger they cause is a mix-up they are a government team sent to reacquire a government asset <laughs> a shaman created the blizzard in the issue to bring the plane down without conflict and it was storm and his powers is mixing that causes it to blossom into a snowblind situation that it causes and then again in this uh, store storm is attacking vindicator guardian major <laughs> maple leaf <laughs> uh, and it's kind of implied that he could drop her but it would cause more damage. So they fall back to reassess the situation and cause less damage. While Sasquatch is reckless. I think it's, I think it's to draw a comparison to him as alpha flights counter the Hulk, but being a Canadian Hulk, he was significantly more agreeable. Uh, I don't agree with most of that. First of all, I think he's dismissing that Sasquatch destroyed an airplane (laughs) just to show how strong he was. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. I mean, we're also talking about a human being, not an asset. Right. Um, but the fact that they are like the human being is saying, I don't want to go. It's not like they're just getting like some radioactive material or some plans or something like that. Right. It's it's not
1: it's not like the X-Men stole
2: a briefcase.
1: This is with Alpha like flight's, flight's funding.
2: Varishnikov defects from the Russian ballet and the Soviet Union sends across like, you know. You know, whatever, like um, Gulag flight to like go get Barishnikov or something like that, like to get this Soviet asset yeah. back. It's like, well, he left. You know, it's
1: you sort of, sort of out of luck. Yeah, people love Alpha Flight, and I get that, but I do think Alpha Flight is, and they uh, they
2: are good guys, right? Like they get established
1: yes. as good guys, but just in this two issue thing, they they look like a bunch of uh, bullies. Yeah, they they seem like guys who just will sort of toe the line, whatever the government says, even if it means. ...attacking, and I think Vindicator, Major Maple Leaf Guardian, got his butt handed by Storm, and I do not think he could have dropped her.
2: Yeah. So we disagree with you entirely, but thank you for the message. Uh, But I do
1: agree that Alpha Flight is cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I read more Alpha Flight than X-Men, I think. It's crazy. um, We got a tweet uh, back at the end of July from Johnny Brandon uh nightcrawler was born like that so this is a comment we weren't sure if nightcrawler turned into yes yeah
2: nightcrawler was most hit... most
1: people's mutant powers show up around puberty right he says nightcrawler was born like that oh, okay after being abandoned by his mother mystique um aka oh, the wow. blue shapeshifter lady he grew up in the munich circus as an acrobat and sideshow act and when people stopped going to circus he became a monk um oh, so dude, we had man. had a dispute because at some point a Nightcrawler is basically telling Cyclops, like, hey, I had it worse than you, and I'm in a good mood.
2: Yes. Uh, so we did not know Nightcrawler's backstory. Thank you for correcting that.
1: Um, uh, unrelated to that, but I put it in, I, I made a note of it next to that uh, email, mm-hmm. is uh, my son, when we play sometimes, he calls me pickle Puss. <laughs> and do you know what that's from, Will? No. It's what Spider-Man sometimes calls J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> <laughs> um, like not super frequently, but frequently enough that he has picked up on it. And so when we are like pretending to be superheroes, he often refers to me as a pickle puss.
2: <laughs> it's
1: very fun. It's very fun. I don't think you're uh, a
2: pickle puss, Kev.
1: Uh, I, I'm happy to have Spider-Man lingo dropped from my son <laughs> in any form. Uh, Casey Bruce emails us with a casting thing, uh, and and basically the my favorite kind of casting thing where he does the casting. Okay, good. Uh, Casting the Enforcers with UCB CBB folks. So that's UCB The Upright Citizens Brigade and CBB uh, Comedy Bang Bang. Okay, this is the most niche email we have gotten. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, When you inevitably get all the Green Goblin, uh, when you inevitably get all Green Goblin, by which I, of course, mean become successful Hollywood producers. (laughs) All right, fair enough, because the Green Goblin at one point produced a movie. Uh, Yep. Get the Enforcers. And you get the Enforcers TV show off the ground. Steve Buscemi may be too old for the role of Fancy Dan. I think that was your sort of casting. Yeah, that's probably true. I think he's too old now. Yeah, Casey's right. Uh, With this in mind, I suggest you ask your fellow UCB improvisers and members of the comedy Bang Bang Extended Universe to fill out the cast. Paul Rust would be the fanciest choice for Fancy Dan. And make him instantly likable and lovable. Uh, I could see Tim Kalpakis as Montana. Okay. Yeah. And his fellow birthday boy, Mike Mitchell, as Ox. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's, yep, that could work. Uh, Will Hines, you were also listed in this. You would have a recurring role as the big man, AKA Frederick Foswell. I love it. (laughs) The heavy with my big shoes
2: to make me look taller and stuff.
1: Yeah. Uh, bringing in some star power for sweeps week will be my fellow friend of the show, Scott Ackerman, as cradle robbing reporter Ned Leeds and Lauren Lapkus as Betty Brant. Oh, yeah. Now we're talking. Uh, Kevin Hines. ooh, I'm in this, too. Would have a guest role uh, as the crafty clown in an episode <laughs> guest starring the Circus of Crime, a.k.a. Masters of Menace that would also serve as a backdoor pilot for their own series. <laughs> uh, Ego Nuodum as Princess Python, Sean mm-hmm. Diston as both of the flying Gambonos, <laughs> uh, and your friend and mine, Curtis Rutherford, as the ringmaster. Oh, sure. Once this hits the airwaves with this complete cast, I'll expect an exclusive variant cover of the tie-in comic for my shop. Uh, I'm enjoying the mutants and the mailbags. Keep up the superior work. Sorry, so soppy. <laughs> um. Man,
2: what a what a well-informed email. Yeah, I really Email's love all stuff. that casting. better than, we got to give all our casting jobs to Casey. It's better yeah. than, you know, we're like, ah, Burt Reynolds as so-and-so, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we don't know.
1: Just like, yeah, is uh, is Cary Grant still doing stuff? No, he's been dead. He's been dead for a long time. Okay. Uh, all right, well, he was good. Uh, uh, well, I think uh, as a young child, uh, Kurt Russell from uh, The <laughs> Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, <laughs> Uh, we got an email from Joshua Reitler. He's emailed us before. Hello again, Will and Kevin. Just listened to your recent mailbag episode, and someone mentioned calling the fans something along the lines of the Mary Milksop Marching Society. I recall earlier on in the podcast, one of you referred to us as Screw it.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: And it's a name I assumed we were called. That's my suggestion if you are looking for any, or maybe by the next episode you'll have something set, and this will all be for naught. Screw it's uh, is so much worse than the Merry Marching Milksop Society. I can't believe we tried to make the screw it. We're, we're bad I like them. I like them both. I want our listeners to decide. Are you a screw it or are you a merry <laughs> milksop marching society? One's I like screw because it's quick. It is, yeah, it is terse. It's it's uh mm-hmm. it doesn't doesn't take up a lot of real estate. Uh, I've also been looking forward to mention something else to you in relation to the Enforcers. We get so much Enforcers-related <laughs> email;
2: it's insane it's that like we don't. like one episode. I was like, eh, maybe the Enforcers could be a TV show.
1: I mean, we do love the Enforcers. We do bring them up every now and then. We should have just made our podcast about them. It'd be we're, a bigger. we just could talk about the Enforcers, yeah. Um, I forgot my last email. I'm sure you're getting sick of us repeat emailers. That's not true so I'll let other people have a chance after this, but I just had to know with you two loving the enforcers as much as you do, how did you two feel about them killing off Montana in Spider-Man homecoming a few years ago? Um, uh, there's follow-up questions that we'll get into in a second. So in homecoming, the the first guy who has the shocker powers. Yeah. Uh, his name is Montana's name. Oh, and then, um, the vulture kills him sort of accidentally. And gives yeah. the Shocker gauntlets to another guy who has the Shocker's real name in from the comics. And I forget their real both. I forget both their real names. Adrian. One's Herman, I think. I think the the second Shocker is Herman. Oh yeah. Adrian is the, the Vulture. Vulture's real name. Yeah, uh, but I forget Montana's real name. But the, whoever is the original Shocker in the movie is has Montana Montana's name, and that's because I think in the Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon that had aired. Mm-hmm prior to that movie montana had become the shocker okay um so i guess i don't care Uh, i don't really (laughs) think of that as montana since he didn't wear a cowboy hat and use a lasso
2: yeah i did this did not register with me that montana Mm -hmm. was killed Uh, i remember this sequence um yeah i was just impressed at the update of the tinkerer Yes, the um, Tinker is really fun, and that, uh, and that the fact that, that they had the shocker. It out, it's like, oh, what a, what a smart update of the Tinker. Although, I guess that was preceded by stuff in the comics, but nonetheless, I was, um, I didn't, yeah, yeah. It didn't it, it didn't hit me. So, I I basically don't think he has been killed. I yeah, I think you could have the enforcers
1: with and and that would not bump with that. Because I don't care what the what Montana's real name is. He's Montana. If there's not a guy called Montana, Montana has not been in the movies yet.
2: Yeah so funny that his name is Montana and not Tex. I guess it sounded too much like Ox.
1: Um, How would your enforcer show still work without one of the core members? So you have the enforcers as well, but you can't, but Marvel won't let you use Montana because they're sticking to the fact that they killed him. This, this is easy. This has been well established by Marvel history. You put Herbie the robot
2: in the role of anybody (laughs) that you can't use for whatever reason. So you got fancy Nan, Herbie the robot and Ox are the enforcers. Because when okay, the Fantastic yeah. Four cartoon couldn't use the Human Torch because he had been optioned for some weird IP, Jack Kirby himself designed Herbie the Robot for that FF cartoon. So
1: in your mind, Herbie is the fill-in for any member who can't show up? Yep, you just bring in Herbie. Okay. Yep. There's your answer, Joshua. Uh, okay, what do we got? We got a few more, Will. Um, I'm so glad people email in. This is from Instagram. Uh, I had posted a picture of Amal Farouk, and I had talked about the fact we that he, I, I was, I believed he had something to do with the Legion because he was in the Legion television show, but I wasn't like, exactly sure what. Uh, and so he said, for your information, Amal, uh, uh, Amal Farouk is the Shadow King. He shows up a few more times in X-Men and the New Mutants, and at one point the Shadow King possesses Karma, and he's also involved in the Muir Island Saga crossover. Okay. And- so, there's a little bit more about Thank you. Amal Farouk. We are idiots with the X Men stuff, so we appreciate your guidance. A friend of us in real life, Eric Tenoy, emailed us. Okay. It's they going to correct us in some fashion. Uh, hiya, Milk Bros. <laughs> Enjoyed your discussion of Superior Spider Man, which I have not read, which it's impressive that Eric listens to these when he hasn't read the comics, but it's very nice of him. He's uh, too busy
2: reading the last 20 books he got at a used bookstore.
1: And he reads those while listening to us, I'm sure. The guy consumes media. Like nobody's business. Yeah. Uh, Reliving my confusion about Secret Wars a few seasons ago, as a child, I'd only had issues seven through eight. And listening to how many things need to be explained when Peter goes back into his own brain at the end of Superior Spider-Man left me wondering, what are some of the most confusing convoluted status quos for new readers to have come into throughout comics history? I'm talking about big mainstream comics where somebody might think they understand the premise and then be utterly confused when they picked up an issue. I'm imagining a kid who maybe saw a Spider-Man movie, enjoyed it, heard there were comments about the character, picked up Superior Spider-Man and thought, this is a very different character.
2: <laughs>
1: I guess Thor being a frog for four issues would have been pretty confusing to a Thor newcomer. Are there others? Not one-off issues that are weird, but longish runs of the title. And he has a follow-up question, uh, but first let's answer that. Can you think of anything that falls into that I mean, realm? Kevin,
2: you're so much better equipped than me, but I feel like the Ben Riley clone stuff would be like... If you picked up a Spider-Man comic in the mid nineties, it would be confusing.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely lots of like, especially anytime a character uh, has changed who wears the outfit that would always mm-hmm. be confusing to some extent. Like there was a while where Jane Foster was Thor. Yeah. Um, and it was really great comics, but it's like Jane Foster, his girlfriend, non as guardian is also Thor. Yeah. And also dying of cancer. Um, you pick up on it pretty quick. I mean, I just explained it all to you right there, but it is a big shift and it would not be what you'd expect coming in. I think Superior Spider-Man is probably up there. Yeah. In Confusion, definitely Spider-Man's Ben Riley thing would be very confusing. But I also think it was a little confusing when we started reading Spider-Man because he had an alien costume. Aunt May was sort of out of the picture. Uh, he was dating the black cat. He, Mary Jane wasn't in the book anymore. Yeah. So it was just like, if you knew... Spider-Man from like the cartoons or from reprints, he had changed so drastically at that point.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: Um, Uh, there's a point in the X-Men
2: in the eighties when professor X is gone and Magneto is running the team. That could be kind of
1: jarring. That was for years. Um, there definitely is points in DC comics because of crisis where I think things can get very confusing. Um, like, uh, uh, there was a brief period where Superman uh, was a like they had sort of rebooted him to be younger again
0: mm-hmm. so
1: that he uh, wasn't married to Lois Lane they weren't dating um he sort of like was fighting in like jeans and a t-shirt sometimes <laughs> and it was like you know the comics were pretty good but everyone wanted the original Superman back so they brought back Superman and Lois who were married with his kid but for a brief while there it was, oh yeah, there's two Supermans in this universe. The one from this reboot, who's a little younger, and the older married one from comics from five years ago, both sort of existing at the same time. And then they merged into one person. And it was just very confusing until after a while, you're just like, oh yeah, Superman's married. Don't worry about how he fits and why everyone else got rebooted, but Superman is older. So things like that happen sometimes. Generally with any of those things, if you wait like three months You just forget about that old confusing stuff.
2: Yep. What's Eric's
1: follow-up question? Um, Do you suspect that X-Men fans are writing a higher than usual volume of letters in order to get more mutants in mailbags? Uh, I hope that's true because I'm really enjoying reading the X-Men. I don't know. I I feel like our email just kind of went up. and A lot of it is about Superior Spider-Man in general. But we do get more social media impressions from the X-Men stuff. All right, uh, so we've got the answer two, is we don't know. Two more emails. Well, ready? I'm ready. This one's from Alon Coplin, um uh, fellow improviser. Um, I wanted to a- address a couple of inconsistencies you pantywaists pointed out in Uncanny X-Men that I don't think are inconsistent. I sense a no prize. Number one, gripe. The new X-Men barely know each other. Why are they acting like best friends? Uh, And I should say, this is more about, like, Storm claiming she's best friends with Jean more than just, like, them being friends. Yeah. In general. Um, Answer, it's true that while the issues that are coming out just a few months apart, Claremont does, uh, it's true that the issues are just coming out a few months apart, but Claremont does take the time to put in text boxes that time has passed. He does this a lot when he details that they've been, they spent a few fortnights in the Savage Land, then several weeks on the Japanese tanker uh then however long they stay in japan uh he also does this very early on in the run in the christmas issue where they all go to rockefeller center they say a year has gone by since they've gotten together i think a year of close contact and training does make them pretty close yeah and that's true true. i just want to see a little bit on paper of like them being best friends not just saying they're best friends
2: yeah
1: we get more and more of that as it goes on and that's for sure uh, gripe number two, how could storm pick Magneto's lock with her baby brain? <laughs> uh, in storm's flashback, Claremont wasn't saying she was learning how to pick locks when she was just six months old. I think she was learning to do that when she was eight to 12 or so. Magneto reduced them to having the muscle control that they would have had as six month olds, but retained the brains of their adult selves. Storm was pointing out that she matured unusually quickly for her age. So she had better control over her neck and mouth, but she was able to use the lock picking skills she retained from her whole life. This is you, actually a pretty cool move for Claremont because during Storm's first flashback a few issues back, we see her parents remarking how unusually mature and intelligent she appears, even as a baby. It's clear to me that Claremont was planting the seeds for this robot nanny way back then and may have been his ultimate goal for the entire run. Well, and that's a might bit be of a overstating but, uh, it. But. Yes, that is a pretty
2: good justification. And I think Claremont in general does a pretty good job of dotting these I's and crossing these T's.
1: Yeah, that might be what he meant. It certainly read like he was saying, and I'd have to pull up the exact wording of it, that she would that she learned how to do this stuff shortly after walking or whatever. Yeah. But maybe not. Uh I have two inconsistencies of my own for Superior Spider Man. So these are our chance to uh correct Elan, I think will Okay. I'm really bad at this, but let's give it a shot. If we remember all the way back to Doc Ock's original appearance, we know that the accident which connected him to his arms also gave him brain damage, which is what pushed his already egomaniacal personality into villainy. Before that, he was content to be one of the foremost atomic researchers in the world. you think just having his mind transferred into a healthy brain would have helped him. Uh, also, putting Peter's mind into Doc Ock's unhealthy brain should have also turned him into a villain. Uh, I don't know enough about brains uh, to answer this. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I mean, this is like, how much is the physical brain, like the physical gray matter, you know, dictating your personality and how much is the, whatever else, the chemicals and the electrical impulses that are within that mechanism. Uh, and this is where like the whole idea of swapping bodies is just impossible and insane. Like you, your body is not, so separate from your personality just the same way like when people get sick their personalities get grouchy Mm -hmm. and when people are like on kidney dialysis they they have trouble getting into good moods i mean like you know you're you're (laughs) this assumes a thing that is so not true that it's hard to argue the rules like it's uh, but i would say this i would say that emotionally speaking um Doc Ock is a villain, not because of physical problems in his brain, but because of a spiritual problem. He, It's kind of like Walter White, who becomes a villain over the course of Breaking Bad. I'm left with thinking he was always a villain. And uh, the circumstances just allowed that villain to come out. Um, and the same is true of Doc Ock. You know... We don't really get along, look at him as the foremost atomic scientist. He could have been a prideful, petty, jealous jerk limited by just physical capabilities. Yeah. So I kind of think he was always a villain. It wasn't the mental damage. Uh, And the same thing with Peter. He was always good so intently and innately that you can't suppress it.
1: I think they do reference brain damage at some point. Definitely also in the video game and the The Spider-Man 2 movie. They talk about how the arms did something to his brain but i also think of that as like they they affected if, if your brain is just data
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is how we're sort of treating it for the storyline to collection yeah. of memories and beliefs and 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 what have you mm-hmm. um that da- that data got damaged that's the problem i don't think it's that the uh, the exterior of the hard drive got a dent in it. It's like that dent caused the data to be damaged. And now it's working fine at holding that data, but that data has been corrupted. Yeah. So I think his data was corrupted. (laughs) Um, Uh, But Breaking Bad is a good example, right? Because we also see lots of flashbacks to Otto during that arc and in other storylines where... He's never a great person. He's had a rough life and lots of bad yeah, things. Yeah, he's had a, caused he him to be a, a bad of of a child and, and,
2: and stuff. But
1: those seeds are long
2: before he, the arms gave him any brain damage.
1: Yeah. Uh, when Otto Peter first encounters Professor Lamaze, he remembers him, him as some poor, dumb schmuck he knew in college, who he made fun of and didn't interact with again after that. Yet when Otto Peter presents his doctoral thesis, Lamaze is somehow intimately familiar with Otto's research. Right. In what world does Otto ever confide in anyone, let alone Lamaz, the Schnaz? I just don't buy it. Oh,
2: I, I read that differently. I read that Lamaz had been like traumatized by this arrogant fellow student mm-hmm. and sort of got obsessed with following his career and just yeah. read published papers and could surmise, hey, you are in an area that is, that is normally dominated by Otto Octavius. Um, yeah, I also I think –
1: if you were in school with somebody who became a supervillain, if you're like one of your classmates was a supervillain yeah. and, an and. and oh, famous yeah, publicly having, known supervillain. Yeah. Yeah. And famous for having tentacle arms that used mental control. And that was like what you studied in school. Yeah. You'd, you, anytime anyone talked about like mind controlling tentacles, you'd be like, Hey, that yeah. reminds me of the guy we went to school with. He tried to kill Spider-Man all those times. Yeah. Uh, and here's Peter Parker, a guy who designs weapons for Spider-Man.
2: Yeah, this is easier than the brain swap one. I think like mm-hmm. he did not need to have intimate knowledge of Otto to recognize the similarities in the work. Uh, his
1: conclusion, by the way, is that Chris Claremont is a genius and Dan Slott is an talented hack, which I think he is uh, uh, a bit being. A bit of an yeah, yeah, I think he's doing that on purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, how old do you think the new X-Men are?
2: Oh, interesting. Well, um, I mean, Wolverine's a weird case because of his healing factor, but he looks to be about 30. Okay. Uh, and he may actually be like 45, but his healing factor makes him thirty. I mean, I think he has
1: hundreds of years, right? Because he was born before the Civil War.
2: Oh, I've, I didn't know that.
1: Oh, yeah. He's like eternal or whatever. Oh, okay. Now, I, I, at this time in the storyline, that had not been decided, okay. but he, looks he for to- sure was an adult man during World War II. Okay. I did not know that. That's crazy. Uh, but yeah. I, I see
2: it. But um, Wolverine feels about 30, like Batman's age, basically. Okay. Um, Colossus, I say younger, more like Spider-Man's age, like grad school age. Mm-hmm. Cyclops, 35. He seems like a, maybe 33, like a little bit older. Storm, also like 26, 27. Um, who else we got? Night, Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler. Young, I, Spider-Man, like 22, 20. I put everybody like Spider-Man or Batman. Mm-hmm. in terms of uh what about gene gray uh scott's age you know early 30s
1: and uh banshee
2: i mean he looks old he's drawn like he looks like he's 40. uh but i'm gonna say more like 29 like like 29 guy he's smoked every day so but he
1: talks about being older okay i don't know I I, banshee just often talks about being too old for this
2: okay then i'm gonna put him at 35
1: okay alan agrees with most of your he put curtain uh, uh piotra at in 20 storm and gene mid-20s sean 40s scott late 20s which i think is underaging scott and logan feels like mid-30s and so pretty much everyone else is exactly what you said except for gene you put a little older and yeah. scott a little older i mean i think scott and gene were like 18 in the original x-men comics yeah so they have at the youngest they're mid-20s but they feel like late 20s early 30s yeah scott feels older than most of the team yeah which is maybe the um, all the more shame he's not friends with wolverine who at least is emotionally his age yeah because wolverine had like well they they become better friends in the next couple of issues oh that's good yeah uh last email from Corey Mintz. The reveal of Wolverine's name was not in the Japan story. Uh, there's a moment in the Japan story where he starts to tell Mariko Logan, his name is yeah. Logan. And We thought, is that the first time? Uh, he told it uh, a leprechaun knew it in issue 103. <laughs> and he posted the image where a leprechaun goes, I think I can help you there, Mr. Logan. Okay. Which Wolverine says, who the blazes are you and how do you know my name? But it definitely is a thing he has not told his teammates. Okay. So Mariko's the first person we've seen him tell, but it was revealed in 103. Leprechauns use their leprechaun magic to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, that's it. Well,
2: we've cleared out our inbox. All right. So we need more email. If you want if you want us to do more mutants and mailbags, we need some email. So, um, yeah. Email us at screwitcomics
1: at gmail.com.
2: Yep, We also have a Twitter, Screw it Comics and an Instagram, Screw it Comics. If you're a hardcore fan of our podcast, we got Screw got Recent and screwitspidey.
1: And um, we've also got some guests coming up. So we'll give you more fodder to email us after we've talked to some people. Uh, we've got some pretty cool guests. We haven't recorded any of them, so I don't want to say who they are.
2: Yeah, but we have know, some they could all plans.
1: they could all drop out, and it could just be you and me talking to each other pretending yeah. to be uh, Fancy Dan.
2: I can pretty much guarantee we're going to have Gethard on again. I think that's pretty safe to say.
1: Yeah, that's just because he keeps following you around and begging. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Like,
2: please, <laughs> please let me on your podcast. I'll let him know that you portrayed him
1: yeah. like that. No, wait till he listens to this podcast, and then we'll see. I don't he's think he never... listens
2: to the mailbag parts. I think, I think, well, I think he's only a mutant listener. And, well, and, then, and and listener. And
1: if he doesn't listen to the end, then he doesn't get to hear me mock him. It's only for me.
2: <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, send us an email and we'll do more of these episodes. And we're going to have, so I guess we're not going to have an episode next week then. We'll probably have an, a week off, maybe two. One or two weeks off and then we'll then we'll be back either with guests or mailbag issues. Yep. All uh, right. Thanks for- Have a uh, good time, everybody. Have a good time, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.
0: Screw it. Screw it we're just to talk about comics. Ever wanted to hear the story of the time that Melissa Fumero from Brooklyn Nine-Nine's kid had a two-hour-long tantrum that drove generations of their family to weep, or maybe the story of SNL's Bobby Moynihan's kid who found random pizza in a playground sandbox and ate it? If so, you should check out Why Mommy Drinks. A weekly comedy podcast where I, Betsy Stover, talk to interesting people like Richard Jefferson from the NBA or Rachel Bloom from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend about a time that their kids broke them down into a shell of their former selves or maybe even drove them to drink. But in a fun way. If you have kids, this show will make you feel less alone. And if you don't have kids, you're going to be so glad you don't have kids. Listen on Campfire Media, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
1: My Mommy? Drinks,
0: campfire.